Easter is just four weeks away. And what I want to do this morning is I want to begin a four-part Easter series that will run through Easter Sunday morning. And this series I'm calling Echoes from the Empty Tomb. It's based out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a chapter entirely devoted to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its many implications for our lives. A chapter that provides, I think, perhaps the most concentrated teaching on the resurrection found anywhere in Scripture. Certainly, there are many passages from which to choose. I mean, there are just scores of passages we could uh, learn from, but the 58 verses in, uh, of this chapter present the reality of resurrection like no other. Now, now, when we talk about resurrection, we're saying actual resurrection, bodily resurrection. Over the next four weeks, we will consider the Christian gospel and why the resurrection matters. We will explore the nature of the resurrection and the question of whose image we bear. And then on Easter Sunday morning, we'll conclude the series by celebrating Christ's victory over death and and, and our share in his triumph. So, so I would just, if, if you're so inclined, I would just encourage you to read ahead, if you'd like, over these next four weeks. weeks. Uh, really allow yourself to, to soak and, and reflect upon and meditate in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, so that not only it would be a, I'm convinced that if we will do this, it will be a, uh, it will wonderfully enhance our Easter celebration, but more importantly, it will enhance your daily walk with Christ. And so uh, I commend that to you as a great opportunity. Our, our passage uh, today is foundational in that it sets the stage for what's coming next by actually bringing us back to square one to the message of the gospel itself. Church, the gospel is the starting point. It's where we must begin if we're to understand the true impact of the resurrection on our lives. In fact, I want to press this point a little bit further. I want you to hear me on this. Uh, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important truth in life. Uh, Because... It reveals God's heart for you. And I think what we need more than anything else today and every day, we need to know who God is and what God thinks of us. And so let's read this together, this passage. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm looking at the first 11 verses. Here we go. Now I would commend, uh, I would remind you, brothers, I would remind you, brothers and sisters in the family of God, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so whether then it was I or they, it really doesn't matter. And so we preach, and so you believed. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for our time and your word this morning. You are the Lord of of life. You are the Lord of love. And we pray, O God, that you would draw us into your presence today that you would uh, open our eyes to gaze upon your beauty and that some of your beauty would mark our lives as we leave this place this morning. We pray that you would uh, quiet our souls in your presence with, uh, with the stillness of a wise trust. We pray that you would lift us above dark moods or feelings of despair or or discouragement, that you would take us out of the shadow of sin and into the light of Christ today, that we may know you and your will for our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Paul talks about the message of the gospel. I want you to see this. He talks about the message of the gospel being of first importance in verse 3. Uh, I believe it is of first importance because it reveals the heart of God and your relation to God is the most significant thing in your life. Uh, you can have everything in life going your way, right? You can have everything in life going your way, but if you and God aren't in good standing, if, if that relationship is out of sync or non-existent, then ultimately nothing else matters. On the other hand, You may be facing incredibly difficult and trying times, incredibly difficult circumstances, but if your relationship with God is intact and healthy, then there is a peace and a strength like nothing this world can offer. The gospel is of first importance, therefore, because knowing God is of first importance. And so my question is, how then does this passage reveal the heart of God? In at least four ways, I think. It reveals God's heart in that Christ died for our sins, verse 3. 
that Christ was buried, verse 4, that he was raised from the dead, verse 4, and that he has appeared in love and power with the grace of God, verses 5 through 8. And so I want to consider, I want to explore these four things with you today. It says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, let me ask you, church, why did Christ die? No, right, according to the, why did Christ die? For our sins. For, for, for whose sins? Exactly. So, so Christ died for my sins. Christ died for your sins. The Bible's very clear here as to why Jesus died. Jesus died for my sins and he died for your sins. Scripture says that sin brings death. So God creates, God gives life, but sin destroys and ultimately kills. It destroys on the earthly human level and it destroys our relationship with God in heaven. And therefore, Christ's death is linked to our sins because only Jesus can save us from them and restore us to God. Remember, when foretelling Christ's birth, the angel, remember the angel said to Joseph, listen, Mary's going to bear a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Years later, when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his earthly ministry, John the Baptist said of him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus was crucified near the end of his earthly ministry, 1 Peter 2.24 declares that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now, even before the time of Christ on earth, the prophet Isaiah said of him, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And, and then Isaiah says, listen, all of us, every single one of us, all of us, we all, like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've all veered off of God's path. We've all done this. We're all guilty of this. We've all sinned against God in this way. We've all turned to our own way. Every single one of us has turned to our own way, and therefore the Lord has laid upon Jesus Jesus, our transgressions, by his stripes, we are healed. The only satisfactory atonement for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, who was and is without sin. Hebrews 9.26 says he has appeared once for all 
to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, beloved, what does this say about God's heart for you? Well, certainly it says that he must love you with depths of love that you cannot even fathom. He loves you with a love so pure and far beyond your wildest imagination. It demonstrates the lengths to which God has gone to rescue you from sin's bondage. God did whatever it took. He held nothing back. He left nothing undone. God dealt with all your wrongs, all your sins, all those times you turned from Him and His will for you, every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed, all of it was nailed with Christ to the cross of Christ. He took it all and He paid the terrible price of it all. Jesus bore it all so that you won't have to bear it anymore. God gave His own Son in love for you and Jesus, who is one with God, lovingly gave His life for yours. You know what we call people who risk their lives for others? Heroes. And rightly so. And if that is, think about this with me. If that is what we call such people on the human level who are just as sin ravaged, just as sin tainted, just as sin stained as we are, how much more heroic is the death of the sinless Son of God? It goes on to say in verse 4 that Christ was buried. I think sometimes we neglect the burial of Jesus. We're so focused on his death and resurrection for obvious reasons that we miss the meaning of the burial itself. That Jesus was buried proves his death. Everyone present at the cross that day saw Jesus die. Everyone. Those who hated him and, and, and knew he had died, those, those who hated him knew he had died and they rejoiced. Those who loved him, like his mom, for instance, and perhaps his closest friend on earth, the Apostle John, they saw him die and they grieved. The Roman executioners who, who had perfected the terrible, <clears throat> this, terrible, this terrible act of crucifixion, they knew he had died which is why they didn't break his legs. If you know the story. Crucifixion typically ended with breaking the legs of the crucified. Because the crucified needed his legs to push up on the stake in his feet in order to breathe, as if the pain of crucifixion itself wasn't enough. And once the legs were broken, asphyxia set in quickly and the victim basically suffocated to death. But they didn't break Jesus' legs because they could tell that he had already died. Everyone present confirmed his death. His body was removed from the cross, prepared for burial and placed in a tomb. And Christ's burial 
likewise speaks to God's heart for you because it illustrates what God has done with your sin. On the cross, Jesus took your sins upon himself, and when he was buried, your sins were buried with him. They were put away for good. They were covered and done as far as God was concerned. The price of sin, sin's consequence, was paid in full. The Lord says in Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions, and I will remember your sins no more. The psalmist, this promise of Psalm 103 The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. In other words, they are on two opposite sides of the spectrum. As far as the east is from the west, so far has has God removed our transgressions from us. So if you have come to Christ, and yet you still carry your sins around with you, beating yourself up in the, in the guilt and shame they bring, all that comes with that, you don't have to do that anymore. Because they were buried with Jesus and blotted out by God himself. You with me, church? Everyone expected Jesus to remain in the grave just as we do today when someone is buried. But he didn't. He was raised just as the scriptures foretold. And we're going to talk more about the resurrection throughout this series, obviously on Easter Sunday, because on the morning of of the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, on the morning, on that Sunday morning, Jesus was raised from the dead. The tomb was found empty, and the news reverberating from that empty tomb still echoes today. Jesus Christ is alive, and with him is the gift of life. So then, Christ's resurrection also reveals the heart of God. Because it shows that God not only took something away, our sins, He also gave something new. Because sin brings death, God removes our sins and replaces them with new life. Christ's resurrection declares that God can take a life that's been completely broken by sin and raise it again to even greater heights than before. In the resurrection, God restores all that sin destroyed or diminished. Forgiveness itself is not enough. You know, you can just ask anyone who's been wronged by another person, or better yet, think about those occasions uh, in which someone else wronged you. Now, isn't it true that even if, even when you forgive the offender, the relationship itself isn't always whole? 
because the effects of the offense still linger. Over time, you may overcome that difficulty. You and the other person may overcome that difficulty. But in some instances, the relationship may be too hard to repair this side of heaven. It just may not get to the level it was before the offense. But Christ's resurrection assures that God can restore you to full relationship with himself. Although your offense against him is far more than anyone's offense against you, God takes away your sin and he gives you new life instead so that your past need not define you anymore. And then verses 5 through 8 talk about how Jesus appeared to many different people after his resurrection. Just as his burial confirmed his death, so do his many appearances confirm that he was raised from the dead. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to those who were part of the original band of, of 12 disciples, then to over 500 different people. He appeared to James, his brother, then to the other apostles and to Paul himself, and any of these could provide eyewitness testimony that Jesus was raised. You know, courtroom verdicts are often reached because of eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is critical. It's key to building a case. When, whenever someone can provide an eyewitness account, the case is strengthened. It was, it's true today. It was true in Paul's day. And so here he's writing to the Corinthians within just about 20 years of Christ's resurrection. Think about that. Just 20 years. And he's stating how the resurrected Lord appeared to flesh and blood people like you and me. Now, some of them, he said, some of them have passed. Some of them have died. Some of them have fallen asleep. But but there were basically he's saying you could go to one of dozens of people and they'll tell you they saw the risen Lord. Were they in a court of law? Hundreds of eyewitnesses could file into the courtroom one by one and give first-hand testimony that they had seen Jesus in his resurrected state. And so I don't want to hear, I get tired of hearing these theories of what happened to, to Jesus, the swoon theory, the stolen body theory, whatever the case may be, because those who deny the resurrection, who deny this part of Christianity, do so not because they've examined the evidence and found it wanting, but because they've never truly examined the evidence. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people who gave firsthand testimony. And what does this say? What does this say about God's heart? What does it say about God's heart for you? Well, doesn't it say that God is the, is the first mover? 
God is the initiator. He's the one who comes to us with love and power and divine grace. Because sin blinds us, sin deadens us spiritually, we need God to open our eyes and renew our spirits, which he does by coming to us in our many places of need. Jesus didn't play hide-and-seek with people. He didn't bust open the tomb and wait for people to find him. No, he went to them and he appeared. And when I look at this list and I consider the kinds of people to whom Jesus appeared, when I consider that, it puts me in their shoes in a way. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to Peter who denied him, Peter who deserted him, when Jesus was arrested, accused, and being beaten without cause, Peter, when questioned about his association to Jesus, Peter denied ever knowing him and then ran away, leaving Jesus to fend for himself. And Jesus appeared to James his brother through Mary, James grew up with Jesus. Whatever sibling rivalries you may experience, James always fell short. James never accepted Jesus in his growing up years. In fact, in the gospel, we see James poking fun at Jesus, mocking Jesus. And sometime, we don't know exactly when, but sometime, Perhaps right here, when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, James came to saving faith. Jesus appeared to Paul, who by his own admission persecuted the church and hated anyone who followed Christ. Paul was an expert in religion and believed that a person could earn God's favor through good works. Paul despised grace at first. And yet by grace, Jesus appeared to him. And when I see such grace extended to people like those listed here who clearly didn't deserve it, it reminds me of his grace toward me and his grace toward you because we're all like Peter aren't we, in some degree? We all talk a big game. We all talk of faith. We all talk of commitment to Christ. We all talk about how we're going to stand for Jesus no matter what. But when we have the opportunity to publicly pledge our allegiance to Him, when faced with the choice between voicing our association to Jesus, our love for Jesus, or risk losing our social standing, aren't we all prone to deny him or desert him, even if only in our silence? Yeah. 
And we're all like James. We're all so close to Jesus and yet so far away. You know, I'm thinking in particular of the person who grows up in a Christian home and yet grows numb to their need for Christ instead of embracing Jesus, embracing Jesus for who he is. As they've seen him all those years, the Savior of the world, the Lord of all, Instead of embracing him, their heart grows cold and distant and unwilling. And we're all like Paul to some degree. We want so much, don't we? We want so much to rest on our laurels. We want to prove ourselves, we want to make a name for ourselves, we want to earn our way. If we do more and try harder, surely God will be impressed. As if our standing before him pays no mind to the arrogance in our own hearts. To each of these people, Jesus appeared. And they were forever changed. Peter became the face of the first church and preached the church's inaugural sermon by which thousands came to saving faith. James was likewise a very prominent figure in the church, a beloved pastor. History tells us that he was just a beloved pastor who, even as we recently learned in our study of Acts and Acts 15, James helped navigate the church through, uh, through those difficulties, those cultural difficulties that arose between Jewish and non-Jewish believers. And Paul, this former persecutor of the church, this, this, this one who fought against all things Christian, became a Christian. Paul says he was untimely born in verse 8, referring to his spiritual birth, his rebirth, and to the fact that God's grace came unexpectedly and at an unexpected time. You know, we're so often tempted to think we must do something to get ourselves right, and then God will come to us, right? God helps those who help themselves, we think. But grace doesn't work that way. Thankfully so. Grace always comes unexpectedly, and it always comes much sooner than we anticipate. Jesus still appears today with grace from God. Maybe we don't see him with the eyes of the flesh as they did at that time, but certainly we see him with the eyes of faith, don't we? We see him with those eyes as the Holy Spirit illumines our hearts. You know, last week, Wes Earhart talked about responding well. I don't know about you, but, but those two words have been with me all week long. Responding well. And he was suggesting that we're known primarily by how we respond to the people in our lives and the circumstances of life 
and, and ultimately by how we respond to God. And I think if, if I could just read a, a bit between the lines here, I think Paul is saying something similar in this passage. He, he wants the Corinthian believers to respond well to the message of the gospel. Which is why he says in verse 1 that he's simply reminding them of what they've already received. You see, he's not teaching them anything new. He's just reminding them of what they already know. And church, I just have to ask if the Corinthians needed this reminder who lived within just 20 years of Jesus, don't we? In other words, beloved, do not forget God's heart for you and what He has done for you on your behalf through Christ. Do not forget this. Hold fast to this message of Jesus, it says. It says, if you hold fast. But that's not to say that your salvation depends on your ability to keep your grip onto Jesus. It's not that at all. Uh, Rather, what Paul is stressing here with these words, hold fast, is that belief in Christ is not a one-time act. It's not... It's not, you know, I came to Jesus years ago. You know, sometime years ago, I asked Jesus into my heart. You know, uh, I got my get out of hell free card. And I'm good to go. It doesn't work that way because the gospel isn't to be believed just once only and then forgotten as you move on to other things. Rather, Paul is emphasizing the point that faith in Jesus is ongoing. Like any healthy relationship, we must lean into it and live out of it. You know, you wouldn't assume a healthy marriage, would you? Just because you recited a few vows years ago. Neither can we assume a healthy communion with Christ just because we once prayed a prayer. In, in, in marriage, the wedding ceremony is merely the beginning of a lifelong relationship. Same with Jesus. Your experience with Christ is to build and grow over time. Look how Paul puts it in verses 1 and 2. He says, I want you to remember the gospel which you received, past tense, in which you stand, present tense, and by which you are being saved. That's active and ongoing. Therefore, if you've received the gospel, then, then you now stand in it and are being saved by it. This is so reassuring. How reassuring uh, that in an incre- increasingly unstable world, you can stand firm on the grace of God, knowing that, that His grace in your life is not a work of the past only, but one that is active and ongoing in, to this very day. 
Listen, Jesus didn't save you just to leave you fending for yourself. He broke the power of sin. And he saves you daily from its grip on your life. He saves you from doubt. He saves you from persistent unbelief. He saves you from your proneness to wander. He saves you to life and to God and to life with God. He saves you to holiness and a purpose and a participation with God and His redemptive work in this world. The gospel includes all of this and more. But maybe there's some who are hearing these words, maybe someone who's going to hear these words, someone in this room or someone who, who may hear this word, these words online. They're hearing these words and, and in your heart of hearts, you're coming to realize that you've never received the message of Jesus. Not really, not in this way, not in the sense that you've entrusted your life to his lordship and care. And I want you to know if that's you, then this very moment is also a gift from God to you. God is revealing his heart for you right now through this message. He is presenting Jesus to you. He is demonstrating his love again, his love for you through the remembrance of Christ's death, Christ's burial, and Christ's resurrection so that Jesus is appearing to you even now in this place at this time in your life. And so open your life to him. Come to Christ and follow him. Don't let another day pass. Receive God's grace today. Stand in God's grace today. Today and from this day forward, allow God's grace to run its full course in your life. And then tell somebody about this decision you've made to trust Jesus so that you can say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if you will do that, It will not be in vain. Loved ones, the gospel is of first importance because it shows God's heart for you. Christ's death shows just how far God has gone to rescue you from sin. Christ's burial reminds that our sins are covered for good. Christ's resurrection is hope and new life and a new outlook on life. And the appearance of Christ to our hearts this morning assures us of his presence and love. Because he who has saved is saving us still, even today, even now. And the gospel assures that he will save us to the uttermost.
Amen. Amen. God, thank you for this great reminder. May the truths of the gospel be daily impressed upon our lives. May we be like those in this passage who need to be reminded, who need to reflect on and remember the significance of Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection and his appearance to us. May you make us gospel-centered people. God-centered people. That we would be that we would um, that we would know you and your heart more and more that we would find our identity in your view of us and therefore participate with you in what you're doing in this world for your great glory and our good.